Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. For those of you who do not know me, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Reach Life Church. If you would stand with me in the in honor of reading God's Word, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 23 as we are continuing in the series that we started several weeks ago, ago that we've entitled Colossians, Jesus is Greater Than Anything. This morning, the title of my message is Let No One Dis." qualify you. Let no one disqualify you. And again, thank you. Uh, if this is your first Sunday, want to just thank you for uh, coming to worship with us. Anytime someone comes and worships with us, we consider it a great honor. And if we have not met, I would love to meet you at the end of the service. So Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. This is God's word. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Jesus You are enough. As we sung earlier, Christ alone, cornerstone. And as we come together, I ask that by your spirit, by the Holy Spirit, you would bind up the brokenhearted. I ask that you would free the captives. I pray that you would bring light into darkness and open the prison doors to those of us who are bound. Lord, help us to walk in freedom in you and you alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as always, my plan is this morning is to walk through this passage. But before we do, I want to show a video that I came across while I was studying for this passage that I think will help set up our time together. Vincent is such a fan of umpires. Every game, he becomes one. He stands in the front row here at the Carolina Mudcats Stadium near Raleigh, copying their calls and mimicking their moves. He gets so into character, it's hard not to play along. For example, on this day, the manager even came over to him to report a lineup change. 
At home, he stands in front of the TV and does the same routine. He even visited an umpire's school where he learned the proper way to call a strike, which apparently isn't to say strike. What umpires say hoit. Why do they say hoit? That's what they all do. What is out? Out. Okay. Ball is? Ball. Strike is? <laughs> I think he wanted to throw me out of this interview. Hoit. <laughs> What is the deal? He's a great kid. Obviously, Vincent would like to grow up to be an umpire someday. But even if he doesn't, hopefully he will retain the values cherished by referees of all stripes. And hopefully he will keep his room just as clean as his imaginary home plate. You know, just like reporter Jeff Glore noted, there's no doubt that Vincent is a great kid. You can't help but just smile as you watch that video. But let me ask you this. What if during the game and the umpire behind the plate called a ball and Vincent went, strike? Would, let me ask you this, could Vincent overturn the call of that umpire? I think the answer is clearly no. Of course he couldn't because he doesn't have the authority of a sanctioned umpire. But let's keep in our imagination. Imagine that the batter hears the call from the stands. Instead of listening to the umpire, he listens to Vincent. Hoit! Three, you're out. Now, imagine that the, the players listen to him. What would, what would happen? They would think that they were disqualified on a strike when really they were not. And now let's bring that over to, de to today's sermon because that's exactly in a similar way what false teachers were doing in the church. Unauthorized, self-appointed umpires within the church. They had crept into the church of, in Colossae and were attempting to overturn the clear teaching that Jesus is all you need that Jesus is preeminent. They were trying to persuade true believers that they were going to be disqualified, they were going to strike out if they did not add some certain things to Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, that's why he wrote this letter to the church in, in uh, Colossae, to expose and to correct these false teachings. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write something down. Uh, this is the overarching idea that Paul has been carrying throughout his letter. If you have a weekly, you can write this on the back of your weekly. And here's what I want you to write down. Adding to Jesus subtracts from Jesus. Adding to Jesus subtracts from Jesus. That's the overall uh, message the, that, is going, that Paul is carrying throughout this letter. And again, these unauthorized umpires were seeking to convince their listeners that unless they added just a few things to their faith, to their game, God was going to call them out at home plate. And we're going to pick up in verse 16 and work our way through the passage. And as we see where Paul specifies what at least three things that these false teachers were trying to add to the faith of these believers. Verse 16 says, therefore, all right, let's just stop there. Whenever you see, therefore, what do you need to do? You need to stop and ask, what's it there for? Well, last week we saw, this is a continued thought that Paul had from last week. And last week, um, 
Paul has been preaching the gospel to the church, namely that Christians, here's what he was teaching last week, that Christians are full and complete in Christ because Jesus was fully and completely punished on the cross for our sins. We need to get that as we're moving forward here. There is nothing more that needs to be done. Nothing needs to be added in order to gain God's approval for you. If you truly have faith in Jesus, simply believe in him. Receive Jesus by faith. He is enough. Therefore, okay, back to our passage Jesus is is enough, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. In other words, don't let someone act as your judge or your umpire in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Speaking of the law, these are, verse 17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ. Now, apparently these false teachers had Jewish roots because They were teaching the congregation that in addition to Jesus, true believers were also required to observe certain dietary regulations and holy days that are prescribed in the Old Testament Mosaic law. But I want you to notice in verse 17 that Paul clearly states that the Old Testament laws are a shadow of the substance that belongs to Christ. This echoes Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law can never make us perfect by us obeying the law. And so, you know, when you see a shadow that's cast upon the wall, a wall, you know it that the shadow is less than the object that is casting that shadow, that is creating it. And that's what the Old Testament dietary laws and festivals were meant to be. They were meant to be a shadow or a picture of who Jesus really is. Um, And that picture would be set aside once Jesus came. That's that's what's supposed to uh, happen here. Now, it's kind of like a wife Just imagine a wife whose husband's in the military and he's been deployed overseas in a war and she has a picture of him. What's that picture meant to do? It's meant to remind her of her husband. She would look at it. It would cause this longing in her heart. But imagine if when her husband comes home from war, he gets off the plane and instead of running up to him and embracing him, she just holds onto that picture and just, "Mm, I love, this is enough for me. I don't need the real substance of, of, of this, of you. I Your picture's enough. At least we don't argue with each other, right? So she holds on to the picture and loves it instead of her husband. You know, that's what the false teachers were doing. They were embracing the law, that which was meant to point us to Jesus, and they were rejecting Jesus, the very one that the law was meant to lead us to. And so they were what we would call legalists. Um, They upheld uh, the law. They've were, uh, they practiced legalism. And if you're taking notes, the second thing that, uh, for you to write down, and this is the first thing that uh, the false teachers were adding, trying to add to Jesus, and that is legalism adds personal performance. Legalism adds personal performance. Now, uh, uh, what is legalism? Well, legalism seeks to earn or gain God's favor 
by what we do or do not do. That's what, you need to understand that, okay? I'm going to say it one more time. It's, it's the attempt to gain God's favor by what we do or don't do. Sometimes we can mistake rules and regulations as being legalistic. That's not necessarily true. Um, there are sometimes that we are given rules and regulations that we need to conform to, but it's not so that we will gain God's approval. Sometimes it's, it's so that we can stay together and um, be on the same pathway. So just because our church, we might give a rule or a, or a regulation. I don't know of any that come to my mind right now, but just because someone gives a rule or regulation, it doesn't mean they're being regu- um, legalistic. But a legal, legalism basically says that, that uh, God being for us, if we want God to be for us, it depends upon our works rather than the finished work of Jesus on the cross. A legalist is driven by personal performance. So that means that perfectionism, if you, think you're, if you ever call yourself, I'm a perfectionist, you might be saying, I'm a legalist because I'm really focused in on my performance. So that's something that, uh, that, that we need to be aware of as we're moving forward as believers. A legalist is driven by personal performance. And if they, and listen, and those around them don't meet up to their standards, sometimes they're standards from the Bible, but sometimes they're their own standards and people around you are not meeting up to them. It annoys you and it drives you crazy. Um, and one of the ways that legalism expresses itself is through pride, being proud of your, accomplish, of your accomplishments instead of being proud of God's or Jesus' accomplishments. It's like the Pharisee that's in Luke 18 who came to the temple to pray. It says that he stood before the Lord and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I just praise you I'm not like these tax collectors, these adulterers, these swindlers. And then he goes, I tithe, I fast, I, 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 I. He talks about all that he does and doesn't do. And if you've ever studied that parable, Jesus says that man went home condemned because his righteousness, his good works were just not good enough to please God. Now, as we're talking about legalism, I want you to ask yourself, do you struggle with legalism? And before you say no, um, I want to read a quote from uh, the, Di- the Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. He explores subtle legalism within the church in the life of the believer, and he gives what, what he calls a good day, bad day scenario. So listen uh, to these two scenario, scenarios. He writes, Consider two radically different days in your own life. The first one is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off and have a refreshing and profitable quiet time as you read your Bible and pray. Your plans for the day generally fall into place and somehow you sense the presence of God with you. To top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is truly seeking And as you talk with the person, you silently pray to the Holy Spirit to help you and to also work in your friend's heart. That's the first scenario. He says the second day is just the opposite. You don't arise at the first ring of your alarm. Instead, you shut it off 
and go back to sleep. When you finally awaken, it's too late to have a quiet time, so you hurriedly gulp gulp down some breakfast and rush out uh, for the day's activities. You feel guilty about oversleeping and missing your quiet time, and things just generally go wrong all day. You become more and more irritable as the day wears on, and you certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. That evening, however, you quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in receiving Christ as Savior. Would you enter those two witnessing opportunities with a different degree of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a rather bad spiritual day? Now, the truth is most people who hear that story that I just read would say yes, would, ag- would agree to that. It would be, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I'm not being spiritual enough today, so I don't know that the Lord would bless what I'm doing today. And I think that that's because at the core of our being, all true disciples of Jesus, we are recovering legalists. Um, who by default, before we came to Jesus, before we understood the gospel, we thought that God's love and that his blessings were dependent upon our performance. Um, that's what it's like here is in, in, in this world, isn't it? Your job is highly based upon your performance. We Our friendships, a lot of times, are based upon our performances, and that's how we think God is. But you know, the good news about the gospel is that it turns that false belief on its head by revealing that God doesn't bless us. He doesn't like us or love us because of what we've done or what we haven't done. We know this, don't we? But we need to be reminded of this. It says that while we were yet, Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebellious, before we even thought about doing anything good, actually before we were even born, Christ died. Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. That's you. Christ died for you, not because of what you've done. Not, you, it, that does not gain favor because of what you've done. It's Jesus plus nothing. Amen. And we know this, right? We know this, but if we are not vigilant, like this Pharisee in the parable, um, we can be falsely confident before the Lord for the wrong reasons. Our church, I love our church. Um, I praise God for our church, but we can be like the Pharisee if we're not careful. We can say, God, I thank you that we're not like other churches. I mean, we preach, teach sound doctrine from biblical, uh, solid biblical translations, and we uphold expository preaching. We sing not man-centered songs, but Christ-exalting, Christ-centered, gospel-centered songs. We are a church. God, I praise you that we are a church that uh, values community. We value transparency. We value relationships. And we are a church that you can come in here and not feel condemned for asking questions and expressing your doubts. Now, all of those things are good. But if those are things that we hold up before God and say, because of these things, we have gained your favor. We have missed Christ. We have added to 
Christ. They are not good enough to merit God's favor. God's favor only comes through Jesus. Plus, thank you, Andre. Adding to Jesus subtracts from Jesus through, number one, legalism. The second thing is asceticism. If you're taking notes, write this down. Asceticism and adds prideful self-denial. Let's look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Now, that word disqualify carries the imagery of an athletic judge or an umpire disqualifying a participant for breaking the rules. So Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on or delighting in asceticism. You might have a translation that says self-abasement or false humility. Verse 23 also says that these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But look at this, it says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, what is asceticism? Well, asceticism is the practice of denying oneself of worldly pleasures, often by, it's often by treating the body severely. It could involve fasting from food, uh, de- depriving oneself of sleep, uh, sexual pleasures within the marriage, uh, or even giving all your, your worldly possessions uh, to the poor and living a minimalist's life. Now, if you've been paying attention to our church, what we're doing right now, you know that we are in 33 days of prayer and fasting, and you might be saying, well, what about that? Uh, you might also remember that Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone comes to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And didn't Jesus, and he did, didn't Jesus tell the disciples to sell all their possessions and give them to the poor and to come follow him? The question that you might be asking is, what's the difference between that and the asceticism that is being described or um, preached against in our passage? Well, the, the difference is motive. The motive of why someone does something. We are not uh, calling you to pray and to fast, saying, Lord, have favor on us. Lord, we, we, need, we want you to love us more. That we're not fasting for that. We are fasting to focus our hearts and our minds to hear from God. The difference in, in, in the false teachers here, they were not fully resting in God's love for them that is found in Jesus. They were practicing self-denial to try and earn God's favor. They didn't believe Christ's work on the cross was enough. Therefore, they didn't believe that they could enjoy life. They didn't believe that they could enjoy God's gifts to mankind, such as food and and shelter and music and friendship and maybe sporting events. Um, You know, I think that that's something that some of us Christians uh, struggle with. Some of us might find ourselves being happy or enjoying life and think, oh, something's wrong here. We might think we're, we're supposed to be suffering all the time as Christians. We, I've got to be worrying about something. I remember when I was little, younger, uh, I used to worry a lot. But then I remember when I wasn't worrying, I was like, 
Oh no, I'm not worrying. And so I would worry about not, wor- can anyone relate to that? You're worrying because you're not worrying. Uh, <laughs> I think the point is I wanted to show God, you know, um, I'm, I'm really serious about my faith. I'm really, you know, I want to show him a sober spirit. I'm, I'm sad. I'm sad enough, Lord. And you know, um, that's not what God requires. The gospel is clear that that is not what, what God requires of us. Uh, externally, ascetics can appear to be humble and selfless when re- reality is a form of pride. Um, practicing self-denial because it's adding, it's trying to add to what Jesus has already accomplished for us on the cross. It's a form of, of legalism. Um, during the, the Holy, an, an example of this is uh, during the, the Holy Week in the Philippines, there are some who, uh, professing Christians, who try to reenact the crucifixion of Jesus by allowing themselves to be scourged with real whips until their backs are bleeding, and then taking four-inch nails and allowing themselves to, to literally be nailed to crosses with the uh, nails through their hands and their feet. Some, they believe that they are mortifying the flesh, that they're taking that passage uh, that where we're told to mortify the flesh and that that's what they're doing. When, all, when in verse 23, we've already, already read that these practices are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And one of the participants was quoted as saying, listen to this, he says, when we suffer like this, it's like we are helping the Lord. But you know, that's, that's just not true, is it? Um, when we punish ourselves for our sins in order to try to help the Lord, we're adding to the perfect, complete sacrifice of Jesus. Actually, it's an insult to the Lord. Because here's what we're basically saying. Jesus, thank you for what you tried to do on the cross. It it wasn't enough. And so I'm going to help you by suffering too. Um, Early in our marriage, a lot of you know my, I'm not going to go all the way into it, but early in our marriage, um, I practiced a type of religious asceticism. I was confused about salvation. I was also guilt-ridden by a lifestyle I had been living uh, in college, and and it was w- while being a, professing to be a Christian. And uh, one of the things was I I decided that I'm going to show the Lord that I'm really serious about my love for Him, and I'm going to give up everything. So I gave up my wife, my son. I sold everything. I got in a car and lived out in, out west for three months. This was a long time ago, guys. Okay, so some of y'all are looking at me like, should we leave now? But I was trying to, I would preach on the streets. I got arrested. I mean, all these things that are just crazy, passionate things. And I finally came to a point, though, I kept giving everything away, and it felt good for a while, and then I had to do something else because it wasn't, didn't cleanse my conscience And I finally came to a point where I was just like, God, it doesn't matter what I do, it's not enough. And it's like, God's like, you're right. You don't need to prove your love for me. You need to know my love for you first. And then you will want to live for me. And you know, maybe this morning you're like that. Uh, Maybe you have sin that you're just, you, you knew better. 
You were warned or whatever, you, but you still did it. And, you, and the, Satan is taking that sin and is trying to disqualify you by saying you've got to do more than trust in Jesus. Maybe you're saying, you know, I, I, I don't deserve to be forgiven. You're right. None of us deserve it. Or how about, I, I just can't forgive myself for what I do. That, that sounds really humble, doesn't it? But actually, it's an insult to God again, because what you're saying is, Jesus, it wasn't enough what you did for me, for me to find forgiveness. So I'm going to punish myself. And I want to just encourage you, if you're in that place you're, that you believe that there's something that you've got to do to pay for your sins, you've got to feel bad enough or treat yourself bad enough that you are rejecting Jesus's blood for you. You're not trusting him. And I want to encourage us, don't trample on the blood of Jesus by not believing what he did for you. If you really want to honor God, if you really want to glorify him, then stop punishing yourself for your sins and your failures and fully embrace the truth that Jesus gave his life for you so that you wouldn't have to suffer for your sins. In other words, Jesus plus nothing brings joy to the Father's heart. God loves it when you forsake you trying to pay for your sins and you accept what he did for you. It brings joy to the Father's heart. So adding to Jesus subtracts from Jesus through legalism, through asceticism, and lastly, through mysticism. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Mysticism adds subjective experience. Mysticism adds subjective experience. Let's look at where that is in this passage. Verse 18 says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. And here it is. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, there are some who, are, who would call themselves cessationists. A, a cessationist is someone who believes that the miraculous gifts that we read about in the New Testament, the New Testament they all ceased to exist uh, these, such gifts as healing, tongues, prophecy, and visions, they all ceased to exist when the apostles died. Um, now, as a church, we believe that the scriptures, the Bible that we hold in our hands, uh, was completed prior to the death of these apostles. Um, God is not going to give us more chapters to the Bible. If you hear someone say, hey, I've got one more chapter to add to the Bible, that is not, we, we would reject that. All of God's revelation, not all of God's revelation, but God's revelation that we need to be saved and to know God and to live for him and godly is found in the scriptures. We believe, and we also believe that the Holy Spirit is still at work and can give these spiritual gifts to anyone he chooses even in our day. Now, with that said, we want to approach these gifts with great caution, primarily because of how they have been misunderstood, 
how they have been sometimes wrongly elevated above Jesus and how they have been used uh, abusively within the church to control people and to make them feel like they need to add, th- add that to their faith in order to be right with God. And, you know, there's something about hearing someone say this to you. You know, God told me this or God showed me that in a vision. Now, we believe that God speaks to his people. We believe that God can speak to us through visions and dreams also. But there's something when someone says that, it gives that person kind of a spiritual authority. And sometimes it can turn into an immunity from being corrected, especially when it opposes God's word. When, when someone says, God told me, it's like you're not allowed to question them anymore. Because why? Because God's the authority. He's the umpire, the greatest umpire. But you're not allowed to, to question that. And false teachers have used this tactic throughout the ages, to prey upon the weak. We are called to test the spirits, aren't we, church? We are, we, are, we are not to take just everything that we hear or feel or experience without testing it. And, you know, when someone elevates their mystical exp- impressions and dreams and experiences to a level that is equal or above God's written word, Again, what I have found is that they're not open to correction of what's been revealed in scriptures. Um, seven years ago, it's, it's hard to believe that this October, by God's grace, if he hasn't returned and I'm still here and you're still here, we're going to celebrate seven years of when we planted the church. And back then, there was a man in our church who believed that he received divine revelation from God, like directly from God. And uh, the, the thing about it is when, we would, when I would talk to him, I would try to have a conversation, he'd be like, Lawrence. And he had this book right here. He'd flip through it. He'd look up. God told me I can't answer that. It was that kind of, of relationship. Um, in his mind, he believed that he was God's end-timed, end-times messenger. And there was, on another occasion, there was another lady in our church who... Um, she told another lady who told me that she had a vision about me uh, when I was a child that the Lord had given her that when I was a child, I was um, abused, and that's why I was like I am today. And I thought, okay, I, I had a pretty good childhood. I don't remember. I thought I was the one abusing people back when I was a child, but okay, I'm a victim, you know, but it was one of those things where she was like, she was, it was causing these weird things in our church. And then later on, she changed it. She said, something happened in our church. And she said, oh, that vision was actually for another leader in the church. Um, and I was like, don't you know what I look like? I mean, come on, man. Nobody looks like me. But anyway, now, the point I'm getting at is that neither uh, one of these individuals were open to input. They were not open to correction because they we're putting revel- their revelation, their visions above God's word and his people. And what I want to say is that, that God, again, God has given us the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, look at this, all that I have said to you. He will bring to your remembrance my word, God's word. 
So he's given us his written word through the, the prophets and the apostles. He's given us his uh, body, the church. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us experiences. He does give us experiences at times. And he wants the, us to be able to use all of them to lead us to uh, and direct us as we are growing in maturity in Christ. But if you ever hear someone say that, you know, Jesus appeared to me, or he took me up into heaven, or this angel spoke to me, and he gave me new unknown secrets and revelation that the church either lost hundreds of years ago and, and I'm discovering them for, for you, or the church has always misunderstood this. If someone ever speaks to you like that, or if someone tries to convince you that you need to have this certain spiritual experience, uh, otherwise you are not as close to God as you could be, or worse, you're not even saved. If anyone tries to add to Jesus, remember today's passage. Because if you're, listen to me, if your faith is solely in Jesus, that is enough. Do not add to it because you will actually be taking away from it. Again, Paul says that these types of teachers are puffed up without reason by their sensuous or fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head who is Jesus. In other words, they have put something lesser above Jesus, who is above all things. And so I just want to close by asking you, is Jesus enough for you? Are you adding something to Jesus? Or are you maybe taking away? We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. But are you adding anything to Jesus this morning? I want to encourage you, by faith, come to him and fully trust in him. Rest in his finished work. It is enough to cleanse you of your sins, your conscience, and to make you right with God. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you truly are enough. <laughs> um, we don't need to add anything to you or to your work. It's perfect. Uh, if we do add, it actually subtracts from you. And Lord, the way for us not to add is to simply believe in you. So I pray that you would give us grace to believe in you, believe in your work. And that through believing in you, you will produce in us the fruits of good works and a life that is worthy of the gospel, that we will live lives that bring glory to you, that are empowered by the gospel, that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.